What disturbs you? Each one of us have our own quirks and, 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 and preferences and zones and space bubbles. And when they're, when they're popped or trespassed on, we are disturbed. Um, think, of, think of L.A. Think of L.A. more specifically. I feel like, and I may be wrong, but our disturbance level is a bit higher than other global cities. Maybe I'm, I think I'm right, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's a fact, I was thinking, maybe it's a fact that people in L.A., uh, we all are all in our own worlds, you know, driving. There's no public transport. So we're all in these never-ending freeways, so we're constantly in our own worlds. Or maybe it's a fact that we're all artists. Every single one of us is an artist here, and, and our tranquil states needs preservation. I know for me personally, I was thinking that I, and I feel so bad for my wife, I'm disturbed by pretty much everything. Everything disturbs me. The guy who doesn't move after the light has been green for two seconds, I'm the guy who honks. I'm the guy who lays on my horn. The people you hate, I'm that guy. Or the 76 chapters of signs that we have to read in order to park our car, God help me. Um, I was even thinking, I, I get disturbed that we have to pay $7 for organic milk. Like, that's insane. That's worth more than the cow. But no one here likes to be disturbed. Nobody wants to be disturbed. But especially here. Don't disturb my worldview. Don't disturb my goals for life. Don't disturb my opinions, my relationships, my past, my future, my identity, or my life. But, what, you know, what if disturbance was a good thing? What if disturbance was like a fire consuming all that which is impure in our lives? What if disturbance was like a hammer to an anvil smashing all that, that which enslaves us? What if this disturbance that so many of us tried to avoid was exactly what each one of us needed? So let's ask the question differently. Uh, does God disturb you? Does God disturb you? And to that I, I say, I hope so. Now, here's what I mean. If I'm, if I'm disturbing anybody by using the word disturb and God together, here's what I mean. When I say I hope God disturbs you, it means I hope that God would be a disruption to our functioning. It means that I hope God would be an interruption to our settled condition. That God would be a cracking of temporal peace to for an everlasting peace. That God would disturb what's ever necessary for his glory and for our good. Because here's my point for tonight. Some of the most epic, disturbing ways God does this is by His Spirit and by His church. Two weeks ago, we started a very small, what one would call just mini-series. And this mini-series was an expedition where we sought to uncover a general understanding, not of a thing, not of a theory, not an it or feeling, but of a person. That being the Holy Spirit. Or as we'll call Him, or He's been known as the Holy Ghost, or the Spirit of God. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible or not, the book of Acts, this being the the, the very book that we thought was right for us to go through as our first book as a church, this book that we thought was right for us as we're starting out here on the west side, because it's this book that really exposes in so many ways who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. 
Now, there are many books of the Bible, most if not all, which have an idea or a reference or an action of the Holy Spirit. But Acts, the book that is open in front of you all now, is a different animal altogether. Acts is very different. See, Luke, our author of Acts, tells the cascade of the Holy Spirit's coming. The complete outpouring, as if someone took a basin of water and completely flipped it on its head of the Holy Spirit. It's in Acts we see the drenching of the Holy Spirit upon all who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. So which are Christians in this room changes every little thing about us. Sorry about the mic, you guys. Changes every little thing about us. Every single thing. So if we are unaware of His presence and power, we are still changed. Even if we're unaware, we are still changed. So because of that, it's crucial that we strive to have a general sense of who He is before we take too many steps down the path of Acts. So two weeks ago, we spent some time looking at the Spirit's deity, His personhood. We spent some time looking at His purpose in coming to us. Last week, Pastor Lorenzo did a talk about His power and His presence within the life of a believer. But tonight we ask a question. Tonight we ask a question. What are the repercussions of a present and empowering spirit of God? What are the repercussions? For one to ask, what are the side effects? For one to ask, what is the aftermath or the effects of Pentecost? And I believe, I believe the answer is well this. I believe the answer is is, is, is this. This is the answer. Now, I'm not talking about a building or a stage or performance. I'm not talking about university high school or an address or an organized set of rules and practices. I'm not talking about a place where, but I'm talking about a people who. See, friends, an effect of Pentecost and the downpouring of the Holy Ghost from the throne of heaven is the church. It's the church. It's the church. The church being God's weapon against the gates of hell. The church being God's instrument to reach the world. The church being God's tool to shape and grow and mold his beloved. I mean, it would be a crime and far from well-rounded to spend some weeks in study of the Holy Spirit and not to include his cosmic role within the church. The two go together. The two go together. I quoted N.T. Wright on our first night as we started this series, and it fits perfectly here as well. N.T. Wright, Bishop N.T. Wright, he said this. The Holy Spirit and the task of the church, the two march together hand in hand. We can't talk about them apart. So they go together like peanut butter and Holy Spirit jelly. They go together like Tim Burton and Johnny Depp. They go together like Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. Like they just go together. The two march together hand in hand. We cannot talk about them apart. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and the church becomes. We experience the anticipated Spirit of God as we see the account of the church. One theologian totally agrees with me. He says, Thank God for the Acts of the Apostles. The New Testament would be greatly impoverished uh, without it. We are given four accounts of Jesus. Um, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but only one of the early church. So the Acts occupies an indispensable place in the Bible. If you want to know more about the Holy Spirit, and I know many here do, 
If you want to know more about the Holy Spirit, I would encourage you to start your hunt at the foothill of the church. The church, by its very nature, is an immense part of God's plan. It's impossible. It's only possible by Christ's paid in full sacrifice. And it operates hugely, hugely in the Spirit's power, presence, gifting, guiding, illuminating, instructing, convicting, and charging, and so on, and so on, and so on. And it's because of all this, it's because of everything we just talked about, I believe that we can call the Spirit of the living God and the church a great and wonderful disturbance. That the Holy Spirit would be a disruption to our functioning and that the church would be an interruption to our very settled condition. And one of the brightest ways we see that is in our verses for tonight. So tonight I want to look at the reality of the early church, some marks of what a spirit-filled church is, and our hopes as collective church. Now if you've been with us from Acts 1, so for these last seven weeks, so from Acts 1 to now, you remember that Jesus has promised power. Jesus promised power by the way of the Holy Spirit coming. You remember that Jesus told his disciples, those who were following him closely, to wait in Jerusalem. That they now have replaced Judas, you know, Iscariot with the traitor, the traitor with, with Matthias. The Holy Spirit then came, and as 120 were praying and waiting, and then it turned into the, like this, this amazing, you know, Captain Planet party with wind and fire, and everybody's having a blast. And everyone around them thought they were oh, drunk. Look at all these drunks. And then Peter stood up in the midst of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And he gave his first sermon ever. And thousands of people came to know Jesus. We're in that moment. So then we read how the followers of Jesus step into what so many call the first, the early, the first, uh, you know, the early church, the, the very first spirit-filled community. And our verses for today are a list of sorts of spirit-filled effects. Spirit-filled effects. So if the spirit is here, the effects. Look at verse 42. Luke tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then we have fellowship. And then we have breaking of bread and prayers. And this is unbelievable. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling the possessions belonging to disturbing the, and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Let's stop there. Excuse me. Let's just stop there and just, can we stop and go, that's outstanding. That's amazing. How amazing for this early first church. I mean, I know that I, after just reading these short amount of verses, I know that I want to go there. This church seems epic. I would like to follow this church on Instagram. I would like to go to their potlucks. I would like to subscribe to the podcast. This church is epic. But it's interesting, even after reading a short amount of verses, it's interesting because the more we look at these verses and we think about the modern day church, I believe it's here where confusion can sort of slither in. Where confusion can slither in. Because one could easily think, wow, the church has really let herself go from then to now. One can think, I don't know the last time 
somebody stole their possessions from me. Somebody could think, I don't think I have everything in common with everybody in this church. My brother was visiting for Thanksgiving this past week, and he has been, for the most part of his life, uh, completely disillusioned with the church. He cannot stand the church. And he visited for Thanksgiving, and he asked me what I was teaching on, and I read these verses to him. I read these verses to him, and I said, you know, this is the early church. And he asked me one question, and his exact words were, Geez, what changed? What changed? I mean, for those here who don't follow Jesus, for those here who don't proclaim to be a Christian, uh, it's the modern-day church, or Christ's bride, which so many would say is one of the big hindrances to becoming a disciple of Jesus. At least so I've been told. See, it's the church they struggle with. It's the church, dare I say, that they hate. See, Jesus, Jesus is cool. The church, his wife, nah. See, we see in the early church a devotion to prayer. But church now is equated with picketing. We see in the early church a devotion to preaching and teaching. But now the church is devoted to preachers and teachers. We see in the early church people selling their things for others. But now the church is equated with million dollar budgets and ministers with expensive beach homes and high, high salaries. To again quote my brother, what has changed? So because of that, there's a longing, it seems, uh, for the early days of the church. That we need to be like the perfect church mentioned in our verses. That if our 2015 church could just be like the early church... That if the early church is the standard, that the early church is the standard to end all standards. That if the church can go to just being like Acts 2, all of our church problems would just go away. Now all of this reminds me of one thing. As I was reading these verses, and because I have the mind of a 15-year-old boy, all of this reminded me of one thing. And I know it reminded all of you of the exact same thing. The walking dead. I know it reminded you of that. The Lord told me. I know. Here's what I mean. I feel like these verses, for some reason, have turned into the entire plot of The Walking Dead. Now, if you're not familiar with the show, let me explain. And if you're not caught up, spoiler alert, kind of. Bear with me. Every single season of The Walking Dead is a group of misfits pursuing mirages. Every single season. We need to go to the the safe house in Washington, D.C. It's safe there. No, it doesn't exist. We need to go to Terminus, the safe commune. It's safe there. That's our goal. No, it doesn't exist. No, it's foolish. No, that's not going to work. So what happens is, I feel like this is, this is what these people have done, what we're craving for is to go back to this. this it's impossible. It's not safe. That's not the goal. That should not be our goal. Like it's some kind of walking dead, you know, safe house. See, but that's not why these verses are here. In Acts chapter 2, these verses were not put here by Luke so every other church afterwards would go, we need to get back there. That's not the point of this. The early church had its fair, fair, fair share of troubles. Many will teach on in our time of Acts. 
a great deal of lying and greed, persecution, suffering, racial tension, and sinners sinning. And if we really want to wake up called to the early church drama, we could read 1 Corinthians. I mean, that's like, and that's like watching Jersey Shore. I mean, it is drama after drama. Essentially, the church in Acts 2, get this, essentially, the church in Acts 2 isn't the model for all other churches to base itself off of. It's not its point. Our goal should not to become the first century church. Our goal is to be a Christ-centered, gospel-proclaiming, spirit-empowered, spirit-unifying, spirit-of-truth type of church. I'd like us here to just sort of slow our roll for a minute, a minute, because I think there's some really beautiful lessons for collective church in this. So this is a pit stop that will spotlight how magnificent the Holy Spirit is. Because the reality is there is no faultless or perfect church. It's as the great old preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join. Yet, yet, it's here in this wild paradox that is the spirit-filled church that we can stand in awe and wonder. Please don't let this go by. Please don't let this go in one ear and out the other. This is huge. Uh, Hopefully this illustration helps. Um, Do you guys know what happens when a grain of sand or a parasite gets inside of an oyster or a mollusk? The oyster then, uh, to protect itself, secretes this sort of weird, slimy, crystal-like substance which forms around the intrusion. And then over the course of time, this messy, gross process forms a small but beautiful stone of sorts called a pearl. It's called a pearl. Pearls being the most beautiful, expensive uh, mysteries of nature. And they're only formed out of pressure and muck and all these unexpected uh, disturbances. So the church, by the goodness of God, is much like an oyster or a pearl. The beauty of Christ's church comes not in dollar bills or a fancy venue. It does not come with perfect strategies or workflow processes or rhythms or rules. The beauty of the church does not come in eloquent preaching or record-worthy music. The beauty of the, of, the, of the church is the fact that we're all here right now together, unified by the Spirit of the living God. Please get this. You see, the Spirit doesn't create this flawless connection amongst saints, but He actually creates a beautiful communion amongst sinners. Out of the mud of our sin and slimy secretion of our humanity, by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a pearl is formed. See, it's that very famous old saying that the church is a hospital for sinners versus a museum for saints. See, we're a church filled with sinners. We're a church filled with sinners, just like the first century church, meaning we're all depraved, meaning we have all fallen short of the glory of God, which means, you know, what I mean by sinners, which means is we all realize that our hearts and minds have pushed ourselves away from a most perfect And holy God. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we look, no matter how much we do, 
We need a rescuer and we need a savior. We need a hero. Someone to turn the parasite into the pearl. So it's by the cross of Jesus, he himself, who took all the depraved, evil, wretched acts and thoughts and paid them in full so that we can come near to the Father. So now this doesn't mean that we're free from the presence of sin quite yet, but Jesus has broken us free from the power and the bondage of sin. So get this. So yes, a church is full of sinners. And sadly, far too often, people think that it's just full of these perfect people. Church is full of sinners. Thus, the church is messy. Church is messy. But it's a refuge for all. It's a refuge for the hypocrites, for the liars, for the thieves, for greedy, for the gossipers, for the broken, for the shattered, and for hurt people who are in desperate need of Jesus every moment of every day. And collective church would not have it any other way. See, for us to properly view the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and the family of God, the church, and the Spirit's role within it, makes all these imperfect blemishes, the broken, the scratches, and the dents, not something to scoff at or to leave over, but just something to be in awe over. Something to be in awe over. This is the wonder of the Holy Spirit collective church. This is what makes Acts 2 and any other spirit-drenched church a beacon of light. This is the Spirit of God, only the Spirit of God, who can take opposite ends and do what verse 44 says. What did verse 44 say? And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. The Spirit of God can take opposite ends and give them all things in common. Mind blown. To take the introvert and the extrovert, the older and the younger, the graduated with the student, the singles and the married, the differing of opinion with the differing of opinion, the Democrat and the Republican, the DC and the Marvel, the Trojan and the Bruin, and of course the sinner with the sinner. Only the Holy Spirit could bring us together. It's amazing. So what's our commonality? What brings us together despite our vast differences? It's the cross of Christ. See, Acts 2 is not exploiting how great a church this is, but oh, what a wonderful God and his great love can unite the most opposed. And it's here with all the unified living, and even you know, in Acts 2 and here, these living dichotomies, that we see them doing what? What are they doing? These living dichotomies. It says they're sitting under the teachings of God's word together. What's it say they're doing? It says they're fellowshipping together. What does it say they're doing? It says they're praying together. That the opposed are eating together. What does it say they're doing? That they're doing mission together. They're singing together. They are together. Um, Theologian D.A. Carson says it way better than I do. And here's, um, here's what he says, and it's fairly chunky, so bear with me. He says, Ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. See, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus and owe him a common allegiance. 
in the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Be inspired, collective church. Be inspired that the same spirit that fell on the first church, that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead now dwells in you. That the same spirit that was with Mary and brought about the incarnation of Christ dwells in you. Which means what? Which means no matter your age, you can disciple and minister and care for somebody older or more experienced or even wiser. Be inspired, collective church, that the same spirit that hovered over the face of the waters is now in you. It is now in the person younger than you. It is in the person who has only been a Christian for three minutes and thus you can receive from them. I believe that's one of the reasons the church is so, so special. The church is so special. A man with no kids can radically minister to any dad in this room by the power of the Holy Spirit. That the single can minister to the married. That the young can lead the old and the inexperienced with the experienced. And this, my friends, is a huge, huge, huge value of this church. Huge value. Our discipleship groups are intentionally relational. Intentionally relational and hopefully geographic in the sense that just makes it simple. But if you're in a discipleship group here, no matter the people that you have in your group, they have the ability to be tools to be used in your life in radical ways. No matter their age or their fashion choices, if they have a nose ring, I don't care what it is. They can minister to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we spin this, if we spin this, and if inside of us right now screams, no, hold on a minute, hold on. I, I, we need somebody with, with salt and pepper hair. And their, their brown Bible better be well-aged leather. They've better at least, you know, read Desiring God by John Piper. Then they can disciple me. Then they can disciple me. We must be so careful with that sort of thinking. We must be so careful with that sort of thinking to put affinity and agenda of age above what the Spirit can do. We must be very careful. See, this is one of the reasons that leads me to believe that the Holy Ghost and the church are great and wonderful disturbances. As they shake and as they rattle and as they roll our very footing. See, it's a powerful thing that the Spirit does, and I hope we, a collective church, may bear the marks of our own church name. That we as a church believe and operate what our name says that we are. If you are part of this church, I hope that you recognize that that has been one of our goals all along. See, what good would our name be? Collective church. What good would our name be if we are insular and individualistic? What good would our name be if only 20% of the people did 80% of the work? What good would our name be if half, if less than half of the church gave financially to the work of the Lord? What good would our name collective church be if only 55-year-olds and up can disciple me? See, we want a name 
We wanted to be a church with a name that every time you said it, it preached a sermon of our efforts and our approach in reaching the west side. Not because we thought it was cool. No. May we tonight recognize our need for a collective effort, a collective calling, for collective commissioning, our collective unifying and empowering under the Spirit of God. That we are to strive and desire to be a collective church. You see, much like the early church, filled with problems, we are filled with problems. We will be filled with problems until this church is put six feet under. We are going to be filled with problems. But because of that, these verses in Acts show us that the Spirit of God is a banner waving high in the sky of the incredible work that He can do with a bunch of misfits who love Jesus. The Spirit of God is this banner raised above University High School of the work that the Spirit can do with a bunch of natural enemies that are united now as family. Friends, this is what the Holy Ghost does. This is what the Holy Ghost does. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I really do believe that the universal church, that the local church, are these testimonies of sorts, that to be part of a church is to be part of something much bigger than ourselves. Now, let me stop there for a moment and ask a very simple question. Christian... Christians in this room, are you a part of a church? It's a big question. Are you a part of the local church? And that question far transcends attendance at a Sunday morning gathering. If you're a Christian and you're not involved with a local Jesus-proclaiming church, the Spirit of God inside of you is yearning and grasping and reaching for you to be a part of a local church, to be part of the family of God. Are you part of something bigger than yourself? Are you active? Because here's the thing, you were made for it. Those here who aren't Christian, I hope that we that you see the uniqueness that makes up the church. I hope, it, I hope that it strikes you as something unexplainable. That this has to be more than some infinity club or like we're not an Elks Lodge. Like this has to be more than that. I believe the church in essence and form has to be one of the biggest evangelistic instruments we have. That the proof of the living God is the fact that we're all in this room together. But more than that, us as natural enemies are actually devoted to one another. Devoted to one another. To be a part of a local church means to be devoted to one another. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves. Meaning they were here to persevere, that they were earnest for, uh, they were earnest to learn with one another, that they wanted to be with one another, to eat with one another, to pray, to give to one another. All of the distinguishing stripes that made up the first century church are not of the organization's doing, but of the repercussions and marks of a spirit-filled church. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
You see, a spirit-filled church and a spirit-filled Christian is one who hungers and searches and learns the wonders of God. To be a spirit-filled church, to be a spirit-filled Christian means that we are submitted to the authority of God's word in its entirety. So with that, what does God's word mean to you? With that, is it dear to your heart? Are you hungry for it? Does the spirit of truth stir you and guide you in its pages? John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, it's called the spirit of truth. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare you all things that are to come. The preaching of the apostles all the way to modern-day preachers and teachers now is one of the most distinguishing marks of a Christian church, the preaching of God's word. If there is no preaching or if there is bad teaching, the church will be unhealthy. And like a body denied food, it will start to shrivel and starve and eventually pass away. For us at Collective, the Bible sets our preaching agenda. The Bible sets our preaching agenda. Not my, I'm not picking things going, I've got a bone to pick with this crowd. This one's why I'm just going to talk to this crowd. I don't set, Acts 2, 42 sets the agenda. The Bible sets our agenda. It also shows us that a spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled Christian is one who fellowships with one another. And this is huge. This poor word, which is beautiful, has been so battered by churches and, you know, the font papyrus over the years. Food, fun, and fellowship. Come on down. Like this poor word, which is so beautiful, to fellowship is to participate within one another's lives. Then again, a repercussion and an effect of a spirit poured on all believers is that we are participating with you and you with me. I mean, again, this is what the Spirit does, 2 Corinthians. The grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See, one more time, Bishop N.T. Wright, he rocks the house here. He says, And the church exists primarily for two closely correlated purposes, to worship God and to work for his kingdom in the world. The church also exists for a third purpose, which serves the other two. This is so epic. To encourage one another, to build one another up in faith, to pray with and for one another, to learn from one another and teach one another, and to set one another examples to follow, challenges to take up, and urgent tasks to be formed. This is all part of what it is loosely known as fellowship. So to fellowship with one another means they learn together, they pray together both privately and publicly, which means they ate together. Now, commentators are, and, and much smarter people than I cannot figure out for the life of them if verse 42, that they broke bread together, is just talking about spaghetti dinners or it's talking about the Lord's Supper. I mean, I don't, they, but most agree, as I would agree as well, that it's just both. That it's both. Because it's the table. Get this. This is so rad. It's the table that is the great leveling tool. The table is the great leveling tool. Think about it. Either it's the Lord's table or it's our dining room tables that brings all that which is diverse, unified at the table. If you remember Jesus, if you're familiar with the Bible or not, I'll tell you, but Jesus in the Gospels, all the religious leaders were getting all frustrated and flustered. Not because Jesus was eating, not because there was hookers and thieves in the community, but because Jesus was eating with the hookers and thieves. Why? Because the table is an act of association. This is why our neighborhood groups are so serious about eating. 
We're so serious about eating. We encourage food. We encourage you to bring food. Like, we want you to ring the door with your elbows type of bring food. You know what I mean? So in our neighborhood groups, what's beautiful is you have uh, the retired eating a meal with the student. Neighborhood groups should have the techies eating meals with the actors. That's beautiful. Simply great and many things happen over people pigging out, as we probably saw this last Thursday. Don't believe me, look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together. And uh, by the way, just BT dubs, we're going to be talking a lot about the temple and miracles next week. So we're not going to get into it now, but if you want to know about miracles and miracles for today, that's all coming up next week. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Generosity demonstrated dramatically in our verses. Is it not? Look at verse 45, what the early church was doing. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. That's insanity, right? Remember what we spoke on a few weeks ago about the difference between descriptive Bible verses compared to prescriptive Bible verses. This is not a mandate for all Christians to sell all that they have. So you can wipe your your sweating forehead like, oh, my forerunner, my Prius. Like, it's not what it's telling you to do. This is not a mandate for us to do that. This is the description of their voluntary actions. This is the description of their voluntary actions. This is why we're focusing on archetypes within the book of Acts, these forever truths to apply to our lives, to our circumstances, to our day-to-day. See, it's talking about these things, prayer and study of God's word and fellowship, communion. These are descriptions of prescribed truths. Selling your things is a description of what they did. It's what they did. So the archetype here is that those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, those who call Jesus Lord and Savior, are to be generous with their lives doesn't say sell everything you have, but you are to be generous, and I am to be generous with my life, with my time, with my finances. Just as God was generous in the giving of a son, just as the son was generous in the giving of the spirit, thus we are to be generous with gospel motivation, grace motivation with those around us. Church friends, I hope that you've experienced the outrageous joys in giving to those um, you encounter. It is... It is otherworldly. There is nothing like it to give generously to those around you, to give generously to the undeserving waitress, to give generously to one another in this room. There is nothing like it. I'm not saying it's easy, but I think that's the point. Um, I was debating whether or not to tell this cheesy story. It's about a farmer and his prized corn field. I guess it's more of a corny story. <laughs> you guys should leave this church. You guys should go. I can't believe I did that. Let me tell, I'm going to tell, tell the story. There's a story about a farmer and his prized cornfield. I read it the other day and I thought it had some, some application for us. See, each year at the fair, um, this farmer would win first prize for his out-of-this-world perfect corn. I don't know what that tastes like, but I guess it's out of this world. And the local paper asked him one year about his victory. Tell us about your corn. What is the key to winning? You win every year. What is the key to your victory? And the farmer spoke and said, very simply, it's commonality. Commonality. 
what? You're like, what are you talking about? He said, I give and share my corn seed with all of my neighbors. My prize-winning corn seed I give to all of my neighbors. And the interviewer stunned. What? How, why would you give your most precious you know, prize possession freely to your neighbors, your communities, your competitors? Why would you do that? When the farmer began to explain, he goes, well, the wind pollinates from field to field. The wind pollinates from field to field, and it brings seed from field to field. And if we are to, um, and if they were to have, you know, unhealthy corn, I would have unhealthy corn. If they were to have unhealthy corn, I would. So if they grew it, they would take their seed and bring it into my crop. Again, silly illustration, but let me sort of draw the application out of it for us as a church. To have all things in common like corn seed. To have all things in common like corn seed. To give to those around us. To see the good of others. To see others healthy as a key to our health. As a key to our health. To realize we need one another. That so much victory comes from pursuing or assisting in the victories of others. I mean that is a spirit filled church. That is a spirit-filled church. And that, the only other word I, I, could, I, I can't think of any other word, that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. For us, collective, we're just starting out. Yes, we've been praying for now, I mean, gathering some form of a prayer meeting or whatever for the last 15 months or so, but we're less than two months old, fully expressed. We're just starting out. We have yet to see what the Holy Spirit is going to do on the west side. What the Holy Spirit will do in your neighborhood. What the Holy Spirit is going to do at your office or in your classroom. Or even this church. So I end by asking this. What type of church do we want to become? We're a baby church right now. What type of church do we want to become? Do we want to be known for our generosity? Do we want to be known for our fellowship? Do we want to be known for our love? If so, that means you and you and you and me have a role to be played. You have a role in this church. The Spirit has been given and empowered and gifted you for that role. We have yet to see what the Holy Spirit is going to do through you on the west side. How God will how God, use you in your neighborhood. How God wants to use you to change your office. How the Spirit of God wants to empower you in your classrooms. How Jesus wants to transform you in this church. Out of our set of verses, it ends so epically. Look at the very last verse. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day those who were being saved. As the people were seeing and hearing this, the fellowship, the good news was being spread, the commonality, the sending out, the love, people were coming to Jesus and being saved. People were coming to Jesus and being saved. Think about how this applies to us. Think about how this applies to us. They weren't thinking, holy cow, what a church. They were seeing this beautiful, spirit-filled church, and they were crying out, not what a church, but what a savior. May that may that be said of us.